You are listening to the Emergency Podcast System here on Rumble with Michael Moore. I am Michael Moore, and we are in our fourth day, fourth day in a row of bringing you a podcast uh, in a series that we're calling Donald Trump's Police State. And it is all focused on Portland, Oregon. We've had uh, in our first uh, three days here various uh, people from Portland, from a 17-year-old photojournalist uh, to the founder of the uh, Wall of Moms uh, protest group, to the woman who was essentially Portland's founder of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement there many years ago, and also um, started a group called Don't Shoot Portland. And now, uh, today, uh, we are doing our, our fourth I don't want to say in final episode of the series because we're going to stay on top of this because we are taking this very seriously. I've said this. I've said this before Trump was even elected. You must listen to him and you must take him seriously. He is not just fodder for late night comedians. He means what he says most of the time. And it is not in our best interest if we don't pay attention to that. Before we get started on this, I just quickly want to tell you a couple of things. Um, as we've mentioned each day, we have set up a legal defense fund to help those protesters who are dealing with any kind of legal issues, whether they've been arrested, whether they've been abused, uh, attacked, shot, journalists who are being shut down, any of a number of people who are having to deal with uh, this recent action by Donald Trump to use federal forces, secret police, et cetera, to attack the enemy, the citizens of the United States of America. They're starting in Portland. That's why we're focusing on this because we all believe this isn't the end of it. So uh, please contribute uh, to the Rumble Legal Defense Fund for American Dissidents. Uh, You can find a link right here on the platform page for this podcast that you're listening to, uh, you or you can just uh, go to GoFundMe and just type in Rumble Legal Defense Fund. Uh, uh, of course, I've started it. I've contributed to it, but I need you to also contribute to it. We need to all do this together. Please help the people that are risking their lives. And that's exactly what it is, risking their lives for us. I have to say, too, that in our just our first couple of days, we are I believe we're at, we're at the halfway point of the $50,000 goal that we had to raise. So that's just incredible. Thank you to everybody who has contributed to this. I promise you that 100% of your contribution will go to the people who are being assaulted by the police, by these federal troops. Not a dime of it goes to any administrative costs, anything. I'm covering all that. Every bit of this that you give is going to them. And I am working with uh, a number of groups, local groups around the country who are uh, starting to form and do the actual legal work and are going to need uh, funds uh, to do the research, do the evidence, trial fees, whatever it's going to cost. We want to be there for them. That's what this fund is for. The other thing I want to alert you to is that if you're listening to this on Sunday, uh, that would be Sunday, uh, July 26th, tonight, I am going to be joining uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Jamal Bowman, and a number of people in what is being called the Ilhan Omar for Congress Digital Day of Action. That's the IOFCDDA. Uh, 
It's an actual live stream event, though. Bernie and myself, Rashida, Jamal, and others are all going to be part of this uh, tonight. It's at 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Central. Uh, it's, uh, we're all going to be talking uh, with uh, Ilhan about her run for Congress. Ver- various, let's just say, elements uh, are putting up candidates in the primary, in the Democratic primary, to try and stop her there. You know what I'm talking about here, the leadership of a certain party. <laughs> And I don't mean the Republicans. I've not exactly been happy with the squad. And uh, they, they do not want this kind of progressive uh, in Congress representing the Democratic Party. That's why all of us uh, need to support them. So tune into that tonight. It will be a simulcast, uh, live stream simulcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'll have a link here also on my podcast page so that you can uh, sign up to get a reminder for tonight, and it'll show you exactly where to go. But if you just type in Ilhan Omar Digital Day uh, on any, whatever you're on, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Telegraph System, <laughs> Pony Express, but I'll be on there with Bernie and everybody else. So please uh, join us uh, tonight. So without uh, further ado, let, let's jump right into this uh, because this is an emergency. Uh, we are uh, facing something very serious here. It's clear now that Trump has decided that because he can't go out and hold his big, crazy rallies, the tour he's going to do across the country will be with surrogates. And the surrogates are unidentified police and troops in camouflage gear, uh, fully weaponized, starting in Portland, starting to, to see if the, how the surrogates go over there for Trump. And if it goes over uh, there, uh, well, they've already announced they're coming to a number of other cities. So this August is not going to look good. And we need everybody's attention on this, everybody's support. And, you know, this is the moment that we've been talking about for four years that many of us have feared that uh, when he would really use more than just his Twitter account to bring about an authoritarian, totalitarian regime. And that is why we have with us today an individual, a journalist, who fortunately or unfortunately lives in Portland, Oregon, and, uh, but has covered many stories uh, throughout the past few years from various conflict zones and war zones such as Iraq and Ukraine. He's now reporting from a new war zone, Portland, Oregon. He's lived in Portland now for the past year, and it's a city that, like other war-torn cities, is under siege. Not the entire city, just wherever the, the police and the troops decide to go and, and either sweep people off the streets or fire their weapons or, I mean, he's going to explain all this to us because he's been there, um, I, I think, uh, uh, out of these uh, probably 56, 57, 58 nights uh, for well more than half of them right there on the ground. He's now an investigative reporter at the uh, Bellingcat uh, site if you're familiar with that, and he hosts the Behind the Bastards podcast on iHeartRadio. And you know, when I think of iHeartRadio, I always think, when is the Behind the Bastards podcast going to air? (laughs) Robert Evans is his name. Robert, are you there? Yes, sir. Thank you you for joining us. I didn't get you in trouble there with iHeartRadio. No, no, no. They're pretty chill. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a great name for your podcast, Behind the Bastards. 
Well, you you have been there. You've been on the ground. Um, and and am I right? You've been out there a majority of the nights. Yeah, I would say somewhere, but somewhere probably closing in on forty nights. Forty nights. Wow. Yeah. Well, why don't in, in you know most people now have sort of seen something on the national media. I have had a sense that we're really not getting the whole picture and the whole story. You've been there. You're on the ground. You're a journalist. I'm just going to turn the microphone over to you and and have you tell us what's what's been happening. How did this start? Uh, you know, give us the story behind the, the story. This started, Michael, with a um, a kind of general uprising in the city against the, the police bureau. Um, before the feds ever got involved, before that chunk of this, you know, Trump's kind of stormtroopers aspect of it, before that was any real part of this, um, you had you know, Portlanders initially rising up around the 27th, 28th, and then really on the 29th to protest for Black Lives Matter, um, to, uh, to protest in solidarity with, you know, George Floyd, with Minneapolis. Um, and the Portland police cracked down so aggressively on the first couple of nights, uh, first couple of days of that, that it, it really brought the whole city out in a rage in a way that hasn't ever happened before. Can you explain, uh, first of all, to, first of all, to people, when you say Portland Police Bureau, that's what every other place calls the police department. Yeah, Portland is weird. Yeah. It's called the Police Bureau. It sounds a little, yes. Um, yeah. Go ahead. They're a bit weird. Um, and they're uh, honestly much more aggressive than almost any other police department in the country. And they have a long history of that. In 1921, they partnered with the Ku Klux Klan and provided 150 men picked by the Klan with firearms and arresting powers. Um, and those men were allowed to go out and act as vigilantes without displaying their names. Um, and you know, that, that's, that was the Portland police bureau in 1921 and in 2010, an officer last named Kruger was caught maintaining a series of Nazi shrines, shrines to actual dead Nazis, like straight up literal, like Waffen SS guys, uh, on public property. Um, and he briefly got in trouble. And then the Portland police association, our police union, uh, sued in defense of him. Um, and he was eventually given an apology and allowed to retire with a full pension. Um, on another occasion in 2018, I think it was a group of proud boys came to rally in the city. So there was like one of those dueling rallies between proud boys and Antifa and the Portland police caught a group of men from out of state on the roof of a building overlooking the protest with scoped rifles. Um, and they just kind of gave those guys a warning and they didn't even tell the mayor or the city government. Um, and it leaked out a little bit later that they had been communicating with proud boys for months. Um, giving them information on like where they could enter a protest so that they wouldn't get like spotted by the police and searched for weapons. Um, so again, Portland police have um, a, a long history, both of being like really aggressive towards activists. And again, in 2018, they shot a guy in the back of the head with a grenade and nearly killed him. They're also just a very aggressive police force on the streets. 58% of use of force cases by Portland police officers are against, against the mentally handicapped. So this is a, an extremely aggressive wow. force. And when they, when these protests really got started, their immediate response was, you know, the first day after we had on the 29th, um, kind of in response to the burning at the Minneapolis precinct, we had a riot uh, in Portland. And it, it remains, in my opinion, the only real riot that Portland has had, right? People gathered around the Justice Center. They broke all of its windows. Um, when the police dispersed them with tear gas, they ran through the streets and they looted some buildings in the luxury shopping district, lit some banks on fire. There was one night of real rioting in Portland. 
And then the next day, there was a protest that tried to close down an intersection. And the police responded to that very peaceful protest by beating people's faces in with truncheons and then tear gassing not just the crowd, but about six blocks of regular traffic. There were like little kids that got tear gassed in cars. Um, it was it was horrific. Um, they tear gassed uh, houseless people for hours. Um, they just made walls of tear gas um, to try to like push everybody to the waterfront and stuff. It was just really ugly. Um, and it continued for days and days and days and days and days. Unbelievable amounts of gasping. It, as like every judge in the city started doing their best to like issue limitations and injunctions. You know, they, they had an injunction placed against them saying they couldn't use tear gas except for in life-threatening situations. So they just started declaring a riot immediately at the start of every protest um, because a riot is a life-threatening situation. So if they declare a riot, they got to tear gas us again. So that's just what they'd start doing. And it got as silly as the silliest it's maybe been as the second protest at the Portland Police Association headquarters because they get very angry when people protest at their union building. Um, so the second protest at the PPA headquarters, they declared a riot um, uh, with shocking speed. Um, and all I'd seen done was maybe two or three water bottles get chucked at that point. And it turned out their justification was that somebody had thrown something and broken a window on the union building. And video leaked out almost immediately that what had happened is a man was filming a police officer and the cop hit the phone out of his hand into the window. That broke the window. And so they started tear gassing people. Um <laughs> So the federal agents, obviously, very, number one, the way that they fight is very visually spectacular. The, the reality of these kind of BORTAC units and stuff that, um, the, or of these the special units that the, uh, the president is putting together and sending out to other cities, deeply important, deeply important in kind of the story of rising authoritarianism in the United States. I understand why that's the national story. Um, but within Portland, most of the people, particularly the activists who have been here since the beginning, the folks who've gotten the best at sort of resisting law enforcement in the streets, um, this is more than anything a fight with the Portland Police Bureau. Um, the feds kind of came in late in the game and people were like, I guess we're fighting both our own police and multiple federal agencies in the street now. Okay. Your reporting and, and what I have <clears throat> read and listened to you is explain the difference because you wanted to make this point that when the police are doing their violence, their brutality, um, it's very different from these federal troops and secret police who we don't really know who they are. They have a whole different method that seems uh, the randomness of it and is is meant to discombobulate uh, the uh, protesters and it looks it looks like it looks like a war is going on and you've witnessed war you know I, we're about as close to war as you can get without live rounds being fired and they carry live rounds every now they've got m4s obviously all of their sidearms but they have they have m4 rifles um a number of the guys out there uh and so it's it's obviously people aren't getting shot to death, right? It's not as terrible as most city, like the city's not being leveled from the air with bombs, but um, there's, there's an element of covering it. That's a little bit more stressful just because you know, at any moment that could happen any second, the other night um, during a protest, we had a federal agent try to arrest a protester and the crowd charged him and knocked him down and like knocked his helmet off and he pulled his sidearm. And it was like, that was the moment where, okay, that could have, that could have turned into a new Kent state, right? That guy could have just started firing into the crowd. 
Um, and then his buddies could have started firing into the crowd. And you know that every night you go out there. Um, and that's that level of it is is extremely stressful um, because you do have this you have this mix of a lot of the protesters are extremely disciplined um, and very um, intelligent about what actions they take. But you also have at this point, the demonstrations are so large, a lot of wild cards out there. Right. Um, and, and Oregon is a is a city where or is, is a state where um, pretty much everybody has a gun. Um, so it, it's one of those things where we're all just kind of like waiting to, if, to see if something terrible happens. Um, I mean, something terrible has happened. Uh, Donovan LaBella was shot in the skull with a rubber bullet. A lot of people have been shot with rubber bullets. Um, but it's the kind of thing where it fractured his skull, right? It, it fractured his skull. And it was very much a military style. Like it looked like an execution. He was 30, 40 feet away from him. He was holding a boombox above his head and they shot him right between the eyes. Holding uh, a boom, holding a boombox, right? Yeah, holding a boombox, yeah. playing music. And it was the uh, one of our local radio stations, or uh, 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 Oregon Live, I think it was, um, put out an article where they talked to police use of force experts about this. And the use of force experts, it was like a guy from the Los Angeles Sheriff's uh, Department, were like certain that this must have been an accident because this is not how officers are trained to use these weapons. And like, they couldn't have been, they couldn't have known what they were doing because they just wouldn't do that with a rubber bullet. It's just not what you do. Um, and then a DHS memo leaked out to the New York times that showed, well, none of these guys were trained in these weapons. So what they were doing was using their riot control weapons, the same way that they would have used their rifles in a war zone. I still don't have a handle on who, who are these guys? The one, the secret ones, the feds, the feds are, wh where did they come from? Who are they? Some of them do look untrained. They look like they're a little confused. They don't know what to do. They trip and fall. They'll slap a cell phone out of somebody's hand and break a window. Well, this is part of the problem though, Michael. So this is one of the things, there's a lot that's confusing about these feds, right? Because they're from a number of different organizations. They're all kind of under the Homeland Security umbrella, but you've got guys from like BORTAC, which is the, um, the uh, the uh, the customs and border patrol like um SWAT team basically um and those dudes have been like deployed to Iraq and stuff uh, a lot of them most of them are probably like former military maybe former special forces they're they're really scary people and the US marshals are very scary people especially when they're like doing a charge because they're real good at chasing people because they're US marshals but then you do have these um these I'm guessing other ice guys and stuff or people from um you know other agencies at DHS that maybe aren't as well trained because you have kind of these like the scrub crews too. Um, so when these guys come do they out, have, do, they have those, do they have those TSA guys? Are they there? You know, the ones patting us down at the airport. Are they, are they part of this, this, uh, I the TSA out there. Um, but when you're right though, when you say customs yeah. and border patrol, I'm thinking either, well, they're down, yeah. they should, they should be down at the border waiting for the wall to be built. Um, or, or the customs people who, you know, your, our total interaction with them, if you've ever encountered them is, uh, passport, please. I mean, it, it, here's the thing, Michael. These these guys, the CBP folks who are out here on the line, the, they are the ones, because like the marshals, I'm going to guess none of those marshals had done any riot suppression work uh, prior, to the, prior to this. The, um, the CBP guys uh, have experience using tear gas, and the, the experience they have is shooting tear gas at migrants on the border. And this is one of the things that I try to really there bring up. There you go. That's what we want. Yeah. That's what yeah. they should be doing. And I, the thing I try to drive home to people when they ask, like, you'll they'll see the crowd surrounding the fence of the federal courthouse, throwing fireworks at these guys and like basically doing their best to provoke them to come out and do horrible violence. And they'll ask, like, what's the point of this? Why is the crowd 
you know, provoking these guys. And it's like, number one, these guys started by shooting into crowds. But number two, these folks are out doing violence on behalf of the state somewhere, no matter what is going on, because that's their job. They're the people the state sends out to do horrific violence to certain groups of people. And it's usually immigrants. It's usually non-white people who are not citizens and who have that violence done to them in some dark corner of the continent where it's never seen and it's never filmed and the news doesn't care about it. And so part of what the activists who come out and knowingly get assaulted and shot at by these agents every night and, it, and make sure that they get sought, shot at and assaulted by these agents every night, part of what they're doing is saying, you won't do, you, you're going to do violence because that's what the state has you here for. And as long as the state has you at its employ, you will be hurting someone. So I'm going to make sure it's me. I'm going to make sure it's not some nameless, you know, some person who, who, right. whose name will never be recorded on the border, some, some immigrant from Guatemala or something. I'm going to make sure it's me because the state can't pretend I don't exist. Do you think that one of the reasons after what, what night are we in? Uh, this is, as we're recording yeah, this I on. I think it's 58, but it, 58. people have a little bit of a different count depending on if they started at like the 27th right. or the 29th. Yeah. So let's say we're at 58 or 59 uh, nights yeah. of this. They, uh, is the reason why they haven't pulled out the live ammo to actually kill scores of people is because they've got a visual problem with that, that the vast majority of people in Portland are white. It's a very white city. If I can say that. the whitest city in the United States, it, it, okay. It is considered the whitest yeah. of the yeah. large, larger yeah. cities. It is the whitest city. Yeah. So is that the reason that they just don't want, to be shown on television or on the internet killing fellow white people. Um, and that, cause that is not going to win the election. Yeah. Especially now that you've got all these, you know, middle-aged suburban moms coming out in increasing numbers um, to these protests like that there, I think there, there is an understanding, you know, it's like the other night we had a moment where um, a local woman just walked out naked in front of one of these federal firing lines and like sat down in front of them and was like, you know, if you're going to shoot me, shoot me. Like if you're going to claim I'm violent, I'm literally naked. Like I have no weaponry on me. Um, do what you're going to do. And they backed off because um, they do, you know, especially when you're looking at kind of the difference between federal agents and police, federal agents are broadly uh, smarter. Um, so I, I do think there's an understanding there that like, this might not go well for us. Um, it is one of those things. I worry that when the seal is broken, um, it will be pretty total, right? Um, what, what like, is the, what's the seal that's, that's going to be the, broken? The, the seal is shooting live rounds into a crowd. Once that started, they're not going to put, put the bullets back in the uh, briefcase. <sighs> yeah, I, I worry. That's, that's one of the things I worry about. I mean, there's a lot of things I worry about just for the sake of like the press corps that I've, I've gotten to know and I'm, that I'm very proud of working with. Um, they've done a magnificent job of rising to the occasion of covering this, but they've also learned how to cover conflict in a situation where all of the rounds are less than lethal. Right. So there's danger. Sure. And, and some of us have gotten pretty badly hurt. Um, a colleague of mine had some ribs cracked, but um as a rule, you can get right up to the front of the firing line and you want to, to get the best footage, you want to get up really close. And when the live rounds start flying, I'm deeply worried that folks won't be able to adjust quickly to the fact that when there's actual bullets flying, you record in a profoundly different way, right? Your whole goal is to get and stay behind cover, move from cover to cover and never be exposed. 
and you can't be up to the like you, you just can't be that close like you'll get killed um and so that's something that like i have nightmares about is just like what's going to happen if that switch occurs suddenly will people react both within the crowd and within the press corps quickly enough to protect themselves um you wrote that, that you don't you don't you don't think that there is that ultimately you kind of know and, and the reason maybe you're having these sleepless nights is that there probably isn't going to be a way to avoid this yeah i mean it's hard to see if this continues how it doesn't escalate to that point right because it's already come so close to that you know we we've, we had we had we've had multiple nights now where people have attempted to tear down the facade of a federal courthouse and like we had like phalanxes the, we had we had these lines of um federal troops opening fire and throwing grenades at a phalanx of people with shields and leaf blowers 30 feet away from them and these folks in the shields and leaf blowers were like getting you know again 30 feet away from these agents some of whom have actual rifles and just hugging bottles at them um you know which is people have really lost their fear of the federal agents but it's also we're on we're on the edge of a razor here and what's on the other side of that razor um i worry it's a lot of dead people yeah. um i worry it's a lot of dead people and there's at this point a huge amount of commitment in the streets right there was there was from the beginning a lot of commitment to black lives matter and that's still very much centered in sort of the the signs people bring the protest chants people make a lot of the um the actions like the 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 kind of goals that people have is you know defunding or abolishing the police depending on who you ask and reinvesting that money in the black community so there's a lot of commitment to that but it's also at this point after almost 60 days there's a lot of uh, it's very personal to a lot of people right like it's not just i am marching for black lives because i believe in this cause it is i personally and my friends have been horribly injured and assaulted by these exact individuals and so i'm specifically angry at them too right and so i, I don't see people backing down and you've got this situation where basically a whole city has completely lost its fear of the police and now of the federal agents um and they're going to keep pushing because they want them gone and i don't think the police or the federal agents want to go so at some point you've got this unstoppable force or at least so far unstoppable force that's going to meet this immovable object last night a new line of protesters showed up to join the the mom's line to protect the protesters a group of veterans of american veterans from the armed forces showed up to lock arms to defend the protesters from the police from these shock troops that was an amazing thing to see uh, i don't know if you were there or not but it was uh, oh yes i was yeah well tell us about that yeah you know we've had this is kind of part of a, a thing that's been an increasing trend in the protest for the last week or so since this has really become a national story um you had uh after the video of the federal snatch fans you know the feds and unmarked fans pulling people off the street after that went viral Yes. Um, you had a large group of mom, well, not a large, it was initially just about 75, uh, mothers show up in, in to protest against. That's a lot family. of moms, 75 moms showing up. That's a decent number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that um, number has grown. So they showed up, um, and they were like shaking the fence at one point because they were very angry at the fact that there were federal, uh, snatch teams in their town and they just got the, the ever loving hell tear gassed out of them. 
Um, and the thing that tear gas does that the it does clear crowds that don't know how to deal with tear gas. Right. It, it is effective at that. But more than anything, what it does is make people want to come out and fight the cops. Because while tear gassing sucks the first time it happens, there's also a whole set of tactics to deal with it and cope with it and like move around it. And it kind of becomes a game. It's kind of fun after a while and people get good at it. And these, uh, I I think part of what happened because the very next night there were like three times as many moms out. Um, And they, I I was out there and um, they were very, it, it was one of those situations where because the protesters had been so radical, right? After, you know, 50 nights, you've got this crew who are, are very politically radicalized. Um, I wasn't sure how the moms were going to gel with them. And I was kind of concerned that like, okay, they may be willing to like show up here and like protest the feds. But if the crowd starts, you know, pushing the line legally, you know, trying to force a confrontation, are they going to get angry? Are they going to leave? Are they going to understand why the crowd's doing this? And there was a moment where folks in the crowd succeeded in tearing a hole in the fence. And all of these moms started, like you could see this kind of like murmur go through the crowd of moms. And then they stepped forward and plugged the hole in the fence with their bodies. Um, and of course, everybody got tear gassed and shot at that night. And so the next night, even more moms came out and they succeeded in occupying the steps of the courthouse and then I, I can I can remember one of the moms behind me saying, we should go get a sledgehammer and batter down that door. And then she started working with some kid in black block to try to kick down the front door of the courthouse. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that's that's some serious mom anger. Yeah, well, yeah. One of, actually, one of the moms told me that tongue in cheek sort of saying that they are also they were very pissed, not only that they were snatching uh, unarmed, nonviolent citizens off the street and throwing them into unmarked uh, vans, that they were using minivans, these mom, the suburban yeah. mom, uh, they were, they were, she says they were using minivans? Yeah. And they were rentals. Yeah. And I said, you mean, you mean seriously, they're fighting, the federal government is fighting the protesters with something from budget rent-a-car? I mean, this, is this really how low we've sunk? I, I it was, uh, but of course, they, they also have a great sense of humor in addition to now they want to pick up hammers and, uh, and, and, and tear down doors. It's, um, but you know, I guess this is what happens after you've been hit with a rubber bullet. Yeah. It it does radicalize you a bit. There's nothing quite as radicalizing as having a group of faceless, heavily armored police officers do tremendous violence to you. Um, because somebody hucked a water bottle at him or something. Right. Uh, right. Right. Shook a fence. Yeah. It's, 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 so anyway, after that, you started having the next night on Monday, dad block showed up, which was a bunch of dads with leaf blowers. What's it called? Um, dad, dad, what? Dad block? dad block. Like, you know, black block are the guys that the, the yeah, right yeah, okay. is all right about the kids who like wear all black to go commit crimes yeah. and stuff. They say protests and stuff like engage <laughs> in illegal activism. Right. right. Um, so dads, dads show up, dads show up. Now the yeah. moms are wearing the yellow t-shirts. What are the dads wearing? A lot of them are wearing orange shirts. Um, orange and you've shirts. had like one of the guys that's become very popular that my uh, my colleague Sergio almost recorded an interview with is this this old grandfather, this guy in his like seventies who showed up with like a really nice leaf blower and was just like very excited to get to use it. Was like talking about oh you know I did all this research, I found out this one has the most like it's going to be like, I think it's going to be a really good leaf blower. Um, <laughs> and they're you know, and the leaf blowers are used to blow back the tear gas yeah. at the feds. 
at the feds and up into the courthouse. And the feds have been deploying such unbelievable quantities of tear gas. I, I would be shocked if there is a more heavily tear gas space on the planet than the federal courthouse in downtown Portland. Uh, Portland. Describe the, the, the tear gas tornado that uh, <laughs> I saw. So that would have been, I think, um, that would have been Wednesday night. Uh, no, that would have been Thursday night. Thursday night. Um, I, I, you know, th that was a night where the feds actually came out and did battle with the phalanx. So you had this federal battle line and you had the shield wall and the feds were shooting gas. People were hucking it back, throwing bottles back at the feds. The feds were throwing grenades and shooting impact rounds at them. And you had this, this street fight between the two groups. Um, that was very kinetic, a lot of motion. Um, and, and, you know, very impressive crowd. And the crowd is, by the way, always blaring music during this. And it's usually a mix between uh, Rage Against the Machine and uh, the Imperial March from Star Wars, which is uh, sets a tone <laughs> of a certain type. So the feds dispense so much tear gas. Um, you know, multiple city blocks just completely coated in it. The most gas I think I've ever seen. And at one point, as I'm sort of stumbling away from this fight, trying to like clear my head because I've just had grenades go off in my face, I look to my left and there's a tornado. You know, I guess you'd call it a dust devil to be a little bit more precise, but a huge spinning column in the sky of tear gas. It looked like a tornado of tear gas that was just blowing in the center of like the, 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 like right next to the park. Um, and it, it was, uh, I, it, it, it's wild to realize that federal agents have shot at you so much that they created their own weather system. Like that, that's a, that's a different <laughs> level. Wow. Yeah. That was something to see. You're right there. There, I can't imagine how much tear gas has been fired uh, in Portland. It's amazing the degree to which, I mean, yeah, like I, I, I mean, before the feds even came into it, I had been tear gas well over a hundred times um, just by the police. Right. Um, and I, I've lost count at this point. Like I just assume any night I go out, I'm going to get gassed about a dozen times. And that's been pretty, pretty true so far. And you're there, uh, you're there reporting. You're, you're not yeah. leading the, uh, the demonstration. No, but there's no way to avoid getting like if, if the, the way that both our police and the feds use tear gas is very indiscriminate. They just cover large areas in gas. So there's no avoiding it as press, right? There, there are time, different times at which the feds have been better about not shooting press directly with impact munitions, although I've been shot directly with a lot of impact munitions by the feds. Um, but some nights they've been pretty good about not shooting us directly. But there's, you know, they, they, when they're tear gassing, they're tear gassing. So what, what, what do you have to protect yourself? Are you wearing a gas mask? Do you have a bulletproof vest? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I have a bulletproof vest with rifle plates. I have a ballistic helmet. You know, it's the same kit that I, I took over, you know, that I, I essentially the same kit I used in Iraq and that I brought with me to Syria. Like it's, it's you know, the, the kind of armor you wear for these uh, sorts of things. Um, and uh, I also have a respirator. I, I have my glasses. I have a, a very peculiar issue with fogging. So I don't have a nice full face mask like some people. I'm still trying to work on that solution. Um, a lot of people have good full face mask solutions. Um, so it's like a mix of, of folks. And now we have a lot of out of town folks who kind of parachuted in with nice gas mask kits. There's no, you can't buy respirators and gas masks right now within a hundred miles of Portland, really. So uh, Robert, there's a phrase uh, going around on the internet called a uh, riot Pokemon. And I think it's been attributed uh, to you. Uh, you came up with this uh, phrase. Well, just explain to us what this, what this means. 
I mean, yeah, it's um, so the the both the police and to a larger extent, the feds drop a lot of munitions. Right. So especially the federal agents have all sorts of weird grenades that they throw at people constantly. And most of those leave behind like a grenade afterwards. Right. Like it bursts or something. But you have, you know, this this grenade that is now like an expended munition and the streets just littered with them afterwards. Um, and so, you know, folks like the NLG, the National Lawyers Guild try to get their hands on some of that stuff to kind of document what munitions are being used, what like one of my colleagues uh, at 45th Absurdist on Twitter um, pulls out all of the different pins that they can find from, the, or not the pins, but the um, like the, the little handles from the grenades because they have the manufacturing date. And so like one of the things we learned last night is one of the tear gas grenades they tossed at us was 19 years old. Uh, and I was out with Garrison, who you also had on the show that night, who's 17. So we realized that like this kid was getting gassed by tear gas that was two years older than him. Um, <laughs> which is a bit of a problem. So like that's, there, there's, there's a value um, journalistically and sort of like within the context of, of legal observers of organizations trying to hold the government accountable of knowing what munitions are being dispensed, which ones are expired, et cetera. But also like, you know, grenades are neat um, and people like souvenirs and it has become sort of a, um, a little bit of a hobby for people to try to collect as like the spent munitions and trade them even. Um, and, you know, th this is generally when, like, especially when the feds are kind of out in the street and then retreat, it'll just be littered with munitions. It's pretty safe to pick them up as long as you make sure they're not hot. People have taken some very dumb risks to get, uh, you know, the riot Pokemon, um, including like stepping onto federal property when the fence is up and there's only one entrance and they'll be picking stuff up and the U.S. Marshals will charge out to, to grab people. And um, the marshals are very fast, so people don't always get away in time. And I, it's my opinion that it's kind of a dumb risk to take for a souvenir, um, especially since when the feds eventually come out, there's always plenty left on the street. Um, so, you know, I think it's fine if folks want to collect this stuff. And obviously, I think there's some documentary value in doing so. Um, everybody wants a souvenir or whatever, especially if you're going out there risking your butt. But be careful about when you like, don't, don't break federal law just to get a souvenir, right? Like if you're going to risk arrest seriously, make sure it's for something, you know, uh, 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 valuable. Um, yeah, you know, it's just the way people are, right? Make sure you're, make sure you're pulling down a Confederate statue. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something which, is, which is how our, that's the idea for our legal defense fund that we've just started. It began with that. It's like, uh, when Trump said he was going to put you in prison for 10 years, if you tore down a Confederate statue, I thought, well, we've got to then help anybody who is doing anything like that. Nobody should be spending a night in jail for that, as far as I'm concerned. So, but I, I would like to caution people a little bit more at the courthouse. You yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not worth getting inside of the fence with the marshals no. just to pick up a thing. Frankly, I wouldn't pick it up because I would be afraid it had not exploded yet. And and you pick something up that's unexploded, oh, yeah. you could lose a hand. So that happens all the time. It happened last night. Somebody realized as we were kind of sorting through munitions, like, oh shit, this one didn't actually detonate. Like they pulled the pin, it could go off at any second. <laughs> oh, and it was. God. Like, well, you should put that down. <laughs> yeah, put that down. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Um, hey, Robert, if you don't mind, I just got to take a minute here to acknowledge uh, a brand new underwriter, and I'm greatly appreciative of it. And I just wanted to take a minute to tell uh, people listening to this that Raycon, uh, this is the company that makes these uh, incredible earbuds uh, you can use as a Bluetooth means of listening to music or, you know, if you're on a day-long Zoom meeting or, or whatever. These are incredible little earbuds, and they want to be on board in supporting Rumble and, and uh, what we're doing here. And I'm grateful for that, and I wanted to thank them 
and to encourage you, those of you listening, to support Raycon for supporting us. It doesn't matter, you know, what you're listening to. I mean, these these earbuds, they have been <laughs> designed and invented by uh, the rapper uh, Ray J. Uh, I'm sure many of you know. A lot of these kind of premium earbuds, they cost a ton of money. And so they're either asking people that maybe don't have, you know, the working people, whatever, don't have the money for this sort of thing. And then putting out a lot of money that they don't need to be putting out on earbuds. And so he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so he invented a a new way to do it and charge 50% less uh, than these other premium earbuds, which I just thought was incredible. And Ray J, his his newest model, it's called the Everyday E25 earbuds. And everybody that I know, at least, have tried them. They said that these are really, they are the same quality of the, the ones that you're paying twice as much money for. You get six hours of playtime, you know, on, on one charge, right? And you get this, you get kind of a noise isolating effect from these. Even though they're little earbuds, they almost, they feel like you've got those, those big cans on the, the headphones that muffle out all sound. These seem to do the same thing. So I think that they're, they're a great invention. They're a great thing to have and a great thing to use. They're so easy. And of course, Ray J is, he's got a number of other people in the music business who are now using his earbuds, everybody from Snoop Dogg to Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge. So I want to encourage you to give them a look, to thank them for supporting Rumble. And um, here's the way you, you can do that. You go to buyraycon.com slash Rumble. You get 15% off your order and you get to support them and they get to support Rumble. And I want to personally thank Raycon for supporting my voice supporting Rumble, supporting trying to build a better, freer, more democratic country and world. So thank you, uh, Ray J. And thank you, Raycon. And that's buyraycon.com slash Rumble. Basil, was that you? Oh, no, sorry, sorry. I'm, um, I'm clearing the tear gas out of my sinuses. I apologize. Oh, <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, if you need to do that some more, we can we can take yeah. a break. No, I think I'm good. I'm good. You're okay. Did you see uh, the the video of the tear gas tornado, Michael? Yes. <laughs> it all. I almost for a second I had to say somebody CGI'd this or something. This can't be. This can't be what I'm looking at. Um, no, yeah, that's kind of how I felt seeing it in person. Just turning a corner and like, oh, there's no way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> They've shot us so much, they created a weather pattern. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those of us who don't live in Portland, but know that, that this, uh, this may be coming to our locale sometime in the next month or two. Yeah. I mean, what do we need to have on hand to protect ourselves? So I've, yeah. got, a, let's say I've got a backpack. What should be uh, in that backpack? And what should I, if I'm going to go out uh, to what I believe is, uh, you know, obviously the people are peacefully protesting. When I say peacefully, I'm, by that, I mean, uh, the protesters do not bring weapons. They don't have guns. Uh, yeah. they're, not, they don't, they're not there to hurt other human beings. They may not have much respect for the property of the, of the police state, but they nonetheless are not violent people in that yeah. sense. I, I've never seen, I have seen people shoot fireworks at the feds, given, like, it's one of those things. I've also had those same fireworks shot at me because the crowd misses they don't do damage, right? Like they char your pants a little bit or something. These feds are in full body armor. I, I have never seen people do anything to the federal agents 
that had any real chance of of seriously harming them. So what do we what do we, what do we need? Yeah, what do we need yeah. in our in our backpack? Uh, um, when they come to our town. Some sort of respirator, full face if you can get it, and if that's a, a realistic possibility to you. Because if you're going out to protest these guys, do not wear contact lenses. Uh, tear gas can react with contact lenses in a way that will fuse them to your eye and blind you. That it doesn't always happen, but it can. Don't wear contact lenses to to confront people who are going to tear gas you. Wear your glasses. Um, wear goggles over them if you can. You know, work to find a solution that doesn't uh, fog up your eyes. Get a good helmet. Um, it doesn't have to be a ballistic helmet, but a multi-impact helmet, like a derby helmet, is ideal. But not, um, not, but a bi- not a bicycle helmet. That'll work if you have nothing else, right? It's better yeah. than nothing. It will yeah. save probably save your life if you get shot in the head with a grenade, but the, the helmet will be you know done after that. Right. And then I would say some form of armor for your chest, particularly your sternum, right? In Seattle, a couple of weeks or a month or so ago at this point, a young woman was hit in the heart with a, a rubber bullet and it stopped her heart temporarily. She thankfully was resuscitated by medics. Um, but you want to, and you don't need ballistic armor, right? Because body armor is sold out basically nationwide at this moment. If you were to just kind of sew together, like, you know, get a shirt and bu- bundle up a bunch of other shirts underneath it and kind of sew a little armored panel so that you've got you know, a couple of inches of t-shirt padding just over directly over your chest and sternum that will help to protect you from the rubber bullets. If you could get like a, um, you know, like a life vest, like something you'd wear on a kayak or something that will be very adequate protection for impact rounds. Um, so yeah, that, the, that's kind of a basic defensive kit. Um, you want to cover your eyes, you want to have a respirator and you want to have a bunch of bottles of water, ideally with a squeeze top, cause you're going to get the hell tear gassed out of you. And the most important thing to wor- learn about tear gas, if you've never been tear gassed, it's um, it's scary, it's painful, it sucks. For 99.9% of people, you'll be fine. Just don't panic. You'll feel like you can't breathe for a little while. Just walk away. Don't run. Wash your eyes out. Call out for help if you need it. You will be okay. Um, it, it, you will recover relatively quickly. Um, tear gas, unlike mace, you know, as soon as you start washing it out, you tend to get rid of it, rid of it fairly fast. So... Um, and that's really the truth with all of the weapons these guys deploy, right? Except for live rounds when that happens. But all of the non-lethals, they are meant to scare you and make you uncomfortable. But once you get used to them, um, they don't really have much effect, which is what we're seeing in Portland, right? These crowds don't even scatter when they get tear gassed and grenaded now. Um, so isn't that's the whole, is it the whole idea of them sending these troops to Portland to scare the rest of us who don't live in Portland? Like, yeah, you know, isn't that isn't that the idea? I, I would think um, yet it doesn't seem to be working in Portland and it seems that the crowds just get bigger. And uh, I think it's been inspiring to those of us who live in all these other cities uh, across the country. Not that we want the federal government to be sending the, these uh, unidentified troops uh, to our cities, but they should know that we're not going to back down. We're going to stand up. We're not going to take this. Are they getting the message? Are the feds getting the message by now? Are they, or do they need, do they need more of this or do they want the actual war where they actually kill American citizens? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't know, Michael. Um, I, I don't know what these guys as individuals all want. Last night, there was an interesting moment where there was a young woman who was up at the fence yelling at these agents about like the kind of things they were doing and asking them if they were really okay with this. If like they were, um, if they if they thought that this was acceptable behavior, 
And for the very first time in these protests, one of the agents who was standing right in front of her engaged with her and started talking to her mm. and started saying something along the lines of, I'm like, it's my job to be here. I don't want to be like mm-hmm. shooting into this crowd necessarily. Mm. Uh, and they pulled him off the line. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. And it was one of those things where it did look like she was kind of having an effect on this guy, um, which is why they pulled him off the line, um, which I hadn't seen before. And I, and I can't tell you if that's, uh, if that's really having an impact. I, I do think these guys are getting progressively more miserable in there. Cause here's the thing they've deployed so much tear gas and it always gets blown back at them that the, the courthouse they are protecting has been rendered almost uninhabitable. Uh, one of the judges who's like one of the chief judges who works out of that courthouse has ordered all of his employees to stay home and work from home because the density of tear gas that has soaked into the building makes it impossible to operate. And the first seven to eight floors are completely unfit for human habitation now because of how much gas that they've shot in the area. Well, especially um, anybody who's got lungs that are compromised, if you have asthma or right. uh, it's, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be pretty dangerous to think about even going to work in a place like that. Yeah. And, and, and aren't we also in a pandemic that has something to do yeah. with lung issues and a virus that is that is aiming at everybody's lungs to suffocate you with a thousand million tiny little microscopic blood clots? That that's what, yeah, that, you know, what's what COVID-19 does. When I when the police started firing tear gas grenades randomly into traffic, um, I began. I, I wondered. This doesn't seem like a good thing to do during a pandemic, but also like it just doesn't seem like a good thing to do because you're blinding people who are actively driving cars. Uh, but so I, I don't know. There's not a lot of care taken for the the human health consequences of dispensing dispersing these these gatherings. Um, which is like one of the really messed up things is that at the end of the day, the damage that has been done to this courthouse is like $50,000, right? Worth of damage. Um, mm-hmm. And they have spent, God, it's got to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions uh, in manpower and munitions um, defending this, this thing from this crowd. And it's one of those things where people joke about burning the courthouse down. Nobody's going to burn the courthouse down. If they, if the feds leave, they might occupy it and turn it into a ribs restaurant. Um, yeah, tell I don't us think- about tell us about Riot Ribs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Riot Ribs started as just this one guy, Lorenzo, showing up with a grill to cook ribs for people, and he was just kind of repeatedly tear gassed as he was doing it. So he he, went, um, he shows up with a grill to cook ribs for the protesters. Is yeah. he making money on this, or is he is no, he no? He's giving away the ribs for free to anybody who's yeah. hungry. Yeah, that's the whole thing about the restaurant is everyone eats as much as they want uh, and nobody nobody pays. They take donations. And at this point, they actually have stopped taking donations because they got so many. And it's like they 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 were like, look, we can't we don't know how to spend all of this yet. So we're not going to take donations anymore for a while as we try to figure this out because it's turned into more than just a restaurant. Like not only do they cook for I think I mean, they might be feeding a couple of thousand people a day at this point, like an enormous amount of food. Wow. Um, they also have turned into like a large mutual aid cooperative that particularly helps the houseless. So not first off, a lot of the folks who are kind of volunteering there are houseless individuals, but they have like resume writing classes. Uh, they have uh, clothing donation areas where they try to like hook people up with showers and clean clothing for, for job interviews. Um, you know, they provide kind of a, a safe place for people to be people set up tents to even sleep around there. Um, it's a, a, a pretty, It's honestly like one of the more uh, impressive organizations for helping houseless individuals in the entire city of Portland. Um, And it has kind of arisen completely ad hoc. Lorenzo was there at the beginning, but it's kind of evolved into this sort of collective of men and women 
who just have been like the thing that I'm going to do for this to to help with this uprising is cook food for people and make sure that there's always buckets and buckets of water and you know snacks and stuff for and, and, and wipes for the people who need it. Um, it's it's a really impressive. Uh, accomplishment and people love riot ribs uh, folks in that crowd would die for riot ribs um because it's it's they're 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 i mean they're just such good dudes right like they're um and 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 women you know obviously at this point um they're just they have been very committed to to supporting this this uprising and in a way that's like you know there's no fancy like theory sort of uh, applications nobody's talking about like like leftist political theory um, these guys are just be pretty straight up. It's like people shouldn't like people should be able to eat when they need to eat. People should have the stuff, you know, it, to the extent that we can provide it, that they need to be comfortable and healthy. Um, and, you know, uh, we don't want cops anymore. Right. Um, and that's that's their hard line. And uh, it, it's 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 been pretty beautiful to see. And it's I, kind of a perfect example of how if you really want to be you know, the, the, uh, oftentimes the most effective leftist political action um, is not executed by people who have read a single work of political theory in their lives, but who know fundamentally that like what is necessary is for people to take care of each other. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I find most inspiring about the whole riot rib story. Mm, well, that's a great way to put it. You, you, you decided a year ago to move to Portland uh, yeah. long before all of this started. Uh, for, first of all, why? Why? Why did you pick Portland? And, and why did you decide to base your, your freelance uh, journalism and your podcast and everything out of, out of Portland? Well, I was pretty sure something like this was going to happen. Um, I started back, I mean, in 2016, was the first, yeah, 2016 was the first time I wrote an article about like what a new civil war in the United States might look like. And then in, in 2019, I published a, a podcast series called It Could Happen Here. That was like a breakdown of kind of based on what I'd seen in Iraq and Ukraine, what that might look like, how it might start. And as I was kind of putting this together and thinking about this, there were a couple of cities on my short list where I was like, this is where it might kick off. Um, and Portland wound up being pretty close to the top of that list. And because, you know, I just like the Pacific Northwest, I decided, all right, this is the, this is the city I'm going to kind of gamble on because I want to be there for a while. I want to understand the streets. I want to have connections built up in the local community um, before what I think is going to happen happens. Um, and thankfully that wound up being, you know, I, I, I clearly, I, I, I picked the right place. Um, I don't know well, if a civil war is going to ensue, but this is an important story and I'm glad I've been able to cover it here as someone who lives here. What were the other, what were the runner up cities, uh, that you might've, uh, that, that you thought in looking at, because you're right. Um, this just didn't happen. This is a, this is a culmination of yeah. a long, long number of years and decades, frankly, because uh, you've covered the white supremacist movement, you've covered the neo-fascist, yep. and and this has been something that has been on your beat. But uh, I'm just curious uh, if it hadn't been Portland, what were and and I think people listening to this would like to know what where you think those other cities are that may may become the flashpoints for whether or not we're going to save our democracy or not. Yeah, you know, Charlottesville and Richmond are two other areas that I, I looked at. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they, those have both have Rich, Richmond's had some really, really um, um, high intensity protests and actions very recently, um, and so obviously we all know about what happened in Charlottesville in 2017. Um, 
another possibility uh, was Oakland. Um, I saw that as like, okay, this, this kind of might be where it happens. Um, Philadelphia, um, Chicago, these were all places I kind of considered. Um, and Minneapolis, uh, because in, in, in part, you know, all of the protests that they'd had around uh, the murders of black men by police officers kind of previously in the high intensity of those protests. Uh, Ferguson, like St. Louis area, was another place that I, mm. I considered as a possibility. So there's, you know, obviously a number of spots, and a lot of those spots have seen some pretty high, uh, again, high intensity conflicts with law enforcement um, as this kind of nationwide protest movement got going. Um, Minneapolis was, was sort of is sort of a Portland of the Midwest. Yeah, uh, it's a fairly fairly white city with a god awful uh, police department. You know, you could argue that that's where it started. Um, you know, and maybe yeah, that's it is. how. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is where it started. And I, I don't know how. I don't know what's going to get kind of the most attention in the history books, right? Because this isn't over yet. Um, so we'll see, like where it is. But obviously, Minneapolis had. Um, I mean, I had a, I had a ticket to fly out there um, the night after the riot started in Portland, and I, I opted to stay here after that. Um, but it, it, it was, um, that had a huge impact on Portland. You know, it was one of those things where once we had this huge crowd on the 29th assemble around the justice center, which is our police headquarters in jail. And it was like the night after the third precinct had burned. And it just became immediately obvious as soon as this crowd gets uh, around the, the jail and there's no cops present. It's like, Oh, they're going to, they're going to try to destroy this building. <laughs> and, and, and they almost immediately spontaneous yeah right of anger from the crowd they started shattering all the windows and throwing fireworks in um and it was just kind of this like oh yeah portland uh, portland i think might feel just a little bit shown up by minneapolis <laughs> what, do, what do you make of this a trump trump has threatened uh you know he's going to send troops to albuquerque chicago detroit baltimore and at first the mayor of chicago was very much against this and said no way and then uh, a day or so ago, she sort of uh, caved in. And I don't want to say it sounded like she was welcoming uh, Trump sending the troops there, but it, it, do you follow what I'm saying here? It's just, it was disturbing to me. Um, yeah. Why, it is what's, yeah. Why? Why did she do that? Why? And why is she doing that? Um, because I, I, for one thing, as somebody who's kind of invested in the political status quo as it exists, uh, saying we are going to say no to the federal government about the deployment of federal agents in our city. Um, that's a scary thing to consider. That's not secessionist quite, but you're on that pathway when you start saying stuff like that. When you start trying to kick federal agents out of your city and stop them from defending federal property, that is, um, that's a line, right? And it's um, could be a career killer. You may not end up on on the list of potential vice presidential nominees. Yeah, it could be a career killer, but it's also like if you do that, how far are you going to go? Right? How far are you going to go in trying to stop the federal government from doing this? Are you going to like are you going to deploy the national guard to fight the federal agents? Like what what is the line here? Well, that's Nobody what the, the prosecutor, the DA in Philly, <laughs> Philadelphia, right? He has, yeah. he has, he has, he said yesterday that you'd better not send these feds here or I'll have them arrested. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting line. If that gets crossed, 
And you know, we're having that in Portland where the City Bureau of Transportation, you know, the feds have erected this massive fence around the property. It's become the site of a number of battles. Um, and the Portland Bureau of Transportation has declared the fence illegal because it blocks a bike lane and are demanding it be torn down. So we, we're, we're having all these moments that like haven't really come to fruition yet, but it's like we're, we're having these increasing conflicts between state and city level governments and the federal government. We, one of our, the members of our um, city uh, 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 council in Portland has started referring to them as federal troops um, and federal occupiers and started referring to our mayor, Ted Wheeler, and other politicians who've worked with the feds as federal collaborators. Um, right. That's, like, like I have to say, this is our, this is our, this is our fourth, this is our fourth podcast uh, in a row, four days in a row in our, yeah. por- in our Portland series here. And um, each of my guests on the previous three days uh, just went after the mayor. I was a little, I didn't realize what the internal politics were, but, yeah. uh, cause you know, you see him out there, he was getting tear gassed and, and Trump was saying things against him. And so you think, oh, okay. But no, from, at least from my other guests, uh, they had a long list of complaints of yeah. what he did or didn't do in the, in the months and in the time leading up to this, he was, uh, very much in favor of tear gassing and beating back, uh, oh, yeah. uh nonviolent protesters. He's the police commissioner. And again, I've probably been tear gassed personally 100 to 200 times by his officers. And more to the point, because I'm a big boy, I've seen a lot of children tear gassed and a lot of houseless people tear gassed by his police officers. And he couldn't have cared less. So the mm-hmm. fact that he sees some political hay and that, that there are feds here now and decided to go out and get gassed uh, on, on film, um, I couldn't care less about. One of the very few things that everybody in the city of Portland seems to agree on now, and I'm talking about like the far right demonstrators, far left demonstrators, and even the police, is that Ted Wheeler is a very bad mayor. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's it's I mean, I appreciate you all of you sharing that with us because that's not what's coming across on the uh, in the national media. But it, yeah, um, you know, he's got great hair. I think he knows how to present himself to the national the media. It's always there. Yeah. 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 But he's. Yeah, we, we've got two um, two mayoral candidates. I don't endorse mayoral candidates, but we've got two of them who I think would be perfectly wonderful. One is Teresa Rayford, who you've had on the show, I believe, right? Um, and who is like a kind of a leading Black Lives Matter activist in in the city of Portland. She she's also helps to run an organization called Don't Shoot Portland, which has been very yes. active in right. trying to reduce the ability of the police to use right. munitions. Um, she's wonderful. Uh, and we have Sarah Yanaroni, who has gotten tear gassed a number of times um, out at these demonstrations. And who's kind of from the beginning been um, arguing for the demilitarization of the police. So if you're like, there are, I think Portlanders are increasingly looking at, uh, I, 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 I think Ted Wheeler's reelection chances um, are definitely certainly lower than they were a year ago, right? Um, he's in a runoff uh, against Yanaroni, but, but Teresa Rayford's a write-in candidate. Um, so we'll see what happens in November. The evidence that we have from the most recent polls shows that like he's neck and neck with the Adirone, Um And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I, I just can't. Um, I, 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 again, I don't endorse a specific candidate, but it, it seems from an objective standpoint, as someone who has been witnessing this the whole time, that Ted Wheeler has made every decision possible to escalate 
and to allow the police to to escalate this situation. Um, I I can't think of a single action he has taken um, that has actually helped matters. Jeez, well, that's not that's not a very good review of, yeah. of uh, a Democrat who considers himself a liberal. Um, you know, I just want to read you something here that that um, that you did an interview with the New York Times, and uh, you said that. Portland is being used as a bellwether to see what this administration can get away with and also what works to quell protest. The police tactics don't work. This is when you were on night 50. You said, we're on night 50. There's this knowledge, I believe, in the more lucid chunks of the administration that this problem will get worse in the next month. August is shaping up to be one of the hardest months in our nation's modern history. September may be worse, and it will have to come to a head. Wow, that would just send a chill down me when I first read that, and that's almost a week ago now. <sighs> Honestly, in your gut, in your gut, Robert, what are we facing here? And I mean that both in the in yeah. the micro and the macro uh, here, because it is about Portland, and then it's about so much more. You are facing um, continued Black Lives Matter protests, which are continuing in a number of places around the nation to be suppressed with violence by police and federal agents will increasingly join that crowd and will be increasingly used to suppress these protests. At the same time, we are now seeing the expiration of the eviction protections that were put in place at the start of the coronavirus outbreak. There'll be completely, there will be no, none of those left in place in August. Um, more than a third of American homes were unable to meet like mortgage payments uh, in the last month. Um, mm, you have yeah. something like at least a fifth, I think, of people in this country uh, unable to meet rent. Um, you have uh, the unemployment protections, the additional like six hundred dollars, you know, uh, uh, a month that was was coming into people on top a of a week, the, like, yeah, each expiring. week, yeah. Oh, a week, yeah, that's expiring. Um, and the in general, the people who went on unemployment at the start of this, their unemployment is expiring. So you have in August and September, the largest number of Americans maybe in this nation's history who will be staring homelessness right in the face and is an imminent thing uh, and who also will be unable to provide food for themselves and food for their families. Um, and you have that happening as protests are continuing at a pretty high intensity all around the country and as federal agents are being dispatched to quell them. And one of the things that we've seen in Portland is that a lot of this has been fueled by folks who don't have work right now um, and who have been able to be out in the streets and to make this their job, um, to make this the thing that they put all that effort and time into. Um, and you also are seeing uh, in a lot of cases, like what you've seen in Portland with riot ribs, where the infrastructure has been set up to help people who are food insecure, who are, are, are having you know, difficulty uh, surviving because of the, the, their financial situation. So you have this, this situation where people are going to be more desperate than ever, where a lot of the resources to help them will be in these collective movements, and where there will be constant and spreading demonstrations against federal power. Um, and, and, and increasing uh, probably sizes of people, numbers of people on the street. So it is, it is a tremendously dynamic and worrying situation that could go in almost any direction, right? Everything's kind of teetering on the edge of everything else at the moment. Um, and anyone who tells you they know where this is going to go or where you know it's likely to end up is, I think, a liar. Um, but I, 
the the confluence of factors right now, if there aren't immediate protections extended to keep people in their homes, to keep people fed, um, that are pretty robust, you're going to have maybe tens of millions of Americans with nothing to lose. On a note of hope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And people who listen to my podcast know that I consider that one of the dirtiest words in the sense that we're we're often being offered false hope um, and not realistic hope. And so I try to keep that when we talk about this real here. And I'm just curious what you think. What can we do, those of us who are listening to you right now, what can we do to win? To, and by, by winning, I mean not just beating back these, these federal goon squads that are being sent to the cities and, and not just getting rid of Trump. What can we, how can we come out of this? What are we fighting for? Those who are taking to the streets and those who will take to the streets in August and September, what is it exactly that we are fighting for? And I think if, I think if we all have a clear picture of that, I mean, we, are, we know viscerally what we're fighting for. Yeah. The things you just mentioned, the, the basics, a roof over your head, uh, food on the table, perhaps someday, again, a job. But, um, but right now, to, to beat back, I almost feel like we're beating back a force of, of our recent history. And when I say recent, 20th century, 21st century history that that made the poor poorer and the rich richer um, squeezed out the middle class and and have most people living at least a majority of Americans now over fifty percent live from paycheck to paycheck. Nobody wants to live like that anymore and after having gone through and still going through the threat that any of us any family member could die because of something you touched or somebody that breathed around you uh, the the stress of that. So many tens of thousands already dead, and we had a Dr. Redliner on here a week or so ago predicting that if if the if we don't get some leadership and if something doesn't happen by the end of the year, we could have eight hundred thousand, maybe a million dead Americans from this virus. So you've got all of this perfect storm coming together. What I call the three viruses: COVID nineteen, Trump, and and the overall racist and capitalist structure of how this country functions. And I want to believe that we're going to be doing things, we are doing things right now that are going to get us to the other side of this and we're going to be a better people and a better country. But, but so I put that to you. What is it that we need to do that we can do to, when, when I say win, I mean win in the sense of defeating these three viruses and, and, coming together as a people, regardless of class or race or whatever, to support and be there for each other. That, to me, is the win on the other end of this. How do we get there? You know, a a lot of what we are doing and a lot of what I I think people are really saying and expressing when they say Black Lives Matter is that um, all of these these issues that that you just mentioned have a common origin point, and it is the fact that this nation was founded um, was founded upon the slavery, uh, the enslavement of black bodies, the commoditization of black bodies, uh, the dehumanization of black bodies, the dehumanization of indigenous bodies, the the theft of indigenous land. Yes, founded um, on, I say, I call it founded on genocide and built on the backs of slaves. Yes. And 
as a result of that, this has been a nation from its very beginning where there have been large classes of people to whom it is okay for the state to do unaccountable violence. And that has always been a factor in policing from the very beginning of policing in this country. And it has always been a factor in the way our government works. And when you say the reason all lives matter is such an offensive chant is because they never have in this country. And if black lives don't matter, and if indigenous lives don't matter, what, you know, one of the things we're seeing in Portland with the violence being done is that if black and indigenous, indigenous lives don't matter, eventually no one's lives matter because that's how the state works, right? It will continue to expand the core of people to which it can do unaccountable violence because once that's the way things are rooted in, that's the way they keep going. You know, that's the point of that, that quote, um, and I, well, I think it was Niemöller who said it about, uh, first they came for the communists and I was not a communist, so I said nothing, right? Um, this, is, this is what fascism, what authoritarianism always does. And so the only real response to this, um, you know, you, you talk about the need for leadership, and I, I, I certainly think there are at, things that could be done politically that would, would help the situation. But more than anything, I don't think what we need is any kind of centralized leadership or centralized leader. I think the thing that will save us from this is if enough people in this country become ungovernable. That's what Portland's doing right now, right? That's the response that this city mm. in increasingly wow. large chunks has taken. Become yeah. ungovernable. Don't let them keep doing this. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. It has to stop now. And the only way to do that is to say, I'm not taking part in this. I'm not going to perpetuate a system that commodifies and dehumanizes black bodies, that dehumanizes and steals from indigenous people. I'm not going to be a part of that. And one of the ways I can do that, as a white person in particular, but like as any kind of person in this country, is to find the gears of this system built on blood and suffering and throw my body into them repeatedly until it breaks. That's very powerful. That's to be ungovernable. They, the, the, govern, the government that was founded in violence, that has perpetuated violence, that speaks with violence, um, and is now turning it against its own people, no matter how white you are in Portland or anywhere else, you cannot be in the way or you will be crushed. That's their attitude. If we don't allow ourselves to be crushed, to be governed by them anymore, this, this is going to take a commitment I think, frankly, it's already there. I've seen and talked to so many people that have just decided, I don't want to go back to what you call the old normal. To hell with the old normal. Fuck the old normal. We've got to create something different. And, and I, and I think people listening to this, I'm telling you, I know, I can tell by my mail and, and reaction to these podcasts, people have had it. And they're not going back. And they're not going to be pushed around, whether it's by Donald Trump, whether it's by... Uh, his stormtroopers, um, or whether it's by Democrats who give in, who are weak need, who lose the White House even when the people vote for them and they win. It, I just, I think, I don't know. God, I'm, I'm just inspired by what you just said, and I want to, I want to believe it's true. And I, and I guess instead of wanting to believe it's true, I'm going to have to help make it true by living what you just said. And all of us listening to you need to live that way. That. A, a truly free people will refuse to be governed by an apparatus that is racist, that is violent, that is misogynist. And when we decide to do that and then actually act on it, take that risk, 
at that moment, when, when the majority of us have decided to do that, they're doomed. The power structure that has perpetrated this on us. I think of people like in my dad's generation, worked their whole lives in the factory there in Flint, worked, worked you know, not just Flint, but everywhere. And how many people had their, they put into their pensions their whole lives, or they were, had their pensions completely taken away so that in their elder years, they've had to suffer. They have to give up the family home that you can't get, they won't let the Medicaid, they won't, Medicare, they won't pay for the nursing home unless you can prove you're broke. And if, you, if you've kept that family home because you want to give it to your kids, sorry, give it up. Give it up and give us the money. I mean, I'm just citing a few examples here, but I just got really inspired by what you said. And I want, I want to do what you just said. And I want all of us listening to this to do what you just said. That, that way we'll be a truly land of the free. But first, I think we have to be the home of the brave. Right. I think there's got to ask backwards that, that line. Home of the brave first, and then we'll be the land of the free. That, that's the, the, the courage that I see in the streets every night is really the thing that takes my breath away the most. Because I've watched these crowds over the course of almost 60 nights go from thousands of people confronting a few dozen to 100 police officers, getting tear gassed and running away, to what I saw last night, which was by the end of the night, you know, there was 100 or 200 demonstrators left and a pretty much equal number of federal agents and the feds retreated back into the buildings that they occupied and there were an equal number of protesters who they you know who who couldn't have if the feds had really wanted to fight couldn't have stood up to a federal charge who pursued them every step of the way and then once they went back inside the IRS building were banging on the doors of the building with shields demanding that they come out and fight again um like portland has uh, uh, lost its fear. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's what's necessary for everybody. Well, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to the people of Portland. Thank you. God bless you. Please, as much as you can, uh, keep, keep up, keep at it. Um, you've inspired the rest of us. You, Robert, thank you for being part of this. Um, I encourage people to to uh, follow you on Twitter at I write okay on Twitter. Okay, and, okay. You know, I post my live streams there. When I live stream, I do I do Twitter threads from some of the events. Um, yeah, um, so I'll be there. Uh, so it's Robert you know. Robert uh, Evans mm-hmm. uh, at and the Twitter handle is at I write, I write okay. okay, and that's I W R I T E okay. Yes, sir. And uh, and you can follow. Uh, his writings from Portland, uh, the video that he puts up, it's amazing. Are you going back out tonight? Um, yeah, yeah. There's a, a different kind of, I, this This will be an, a, a demonstration against the Portland Police Bureau. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what happens because this particular crew, the last demonstration they did, um, they wound up actually lighting the police union building on fire, which was a, an interesting action. Uh, it was the first time the crowds had actually gone after police property directly since the very first night of things. Um, and it was really interesting. They marched on the North Precinct first and sort of occupied it briefly. And then the police started to get ready to form a riot line and push them out. And they marched away and they made it to the police union building, which we'd gotten tear gassed at a bunch of times and there were no police around it. And so they started putting up barricades in the anticipation that the cops would arrive. And then, you know, we in the press are all kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And suddenly the crowd all starts chanting, what did you see? We didn't see shit. What did you see? We didn't see shit. 
And then they start breaking down the door to light it on fire. Um, and it was wow. just this, wow, I okay. <laughs> I, I had read about that, but I thought, why? I, 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 the cops said they, they put it out really quickly. And I thought, yeah, yeah. they probably started it themselves. But no, that was actually some of the it protesters not the police. broke it. Yeah, they broke in. Yeah. And, and a, yeah, and it was that, that, that was kind of what led to people really assaulting the courthouse directly. People had to break the seal on um, going directly after police property, right? And, and going directly into committing very serious crimes as opposed to just sort of occupying an area and, and waiting for the police to clear you out going in and damaging property like that's that's a um that's a line that 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 was crossed on last saturday and it kind of led to everything that you've seen since um so yeah. i don't know what's going to happen tonight but i'm i'm interested to see wow well, well please be safe uh uh come back be alive do do the work that we need you to do and i say that to everybody else uh, participating uh in the protest and thanks for the warning to the rest of us in terms of what we need to do uh, to uh, get ready. Um, a, a, a life jacket that you might use in the pool or the lake uh, is sufficient enough to stop the, the brunt of most of the rubber bullets. Uh, so that's one, one good thing I picked up from this conversation today. But thank you very much, Robert Evans, uh, for being part of Rumble, for being part of our emergency uh, podcast system here. And uh, uh, keep doing the good work. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you. And thank you, all of you who have listened to these four episodes, four days in a row, uh, talking to people uh, from Portland, from the streets of Portland, from inside the demonstrations that are, are taking place to defend our democracy and to, and to fight the uh, Trump administration and the troops and the secret police that he has sent uh, to Portland and is sending to other cities. Um, and also protesters who are standing up for Black Lives Matter and who have not relented since the, um, uh, the murder of George Floyd. And that has been going on, as Robert said, in many cities, cities that don't have national news media in them, and yet they are at this every single day and night, Richmond, Virginia, et cetera. So uh, congratulations to everybody who's been fighting this fight. Uh, uh, let's let's uh, stay alive. Uh, let's keep doing this. And, um, and thank you for participating in these uh, four podcasts. Um, I'll be back again in, in a, a couple of days. But uh, in the meantime, uh, get involved uh, and show your support. Uh, if you want to help uh, protesters who are being arrested or injured, attacked in any way, journalists, same thing for journalists who are being attacked and injured, uh, contribute to the Rumble Legal Defense Fund for American Dissidents. And you can find that on GoFundMe. Just go to GoFundMe and type in Rumble Legal Defense Fund. And uh, I assure you 100% of all contributions are going to go uh, to support uh, the people in need of our help. Um, thank you. This is it, folks. July is ending. I'm afraid a very hot August is in front of us. And the result, the result of all of this can be incredible on the other end of it but that'll be up to us. I want to thank uh, uh, our executive producer for Rumble, uh, Basil Hamden, who's done such a great job of, of finding and, and talking to the people in Portland. Um, also our editor and our sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and to everybody else who's lent a hand uh, to this podcast. Uh, and to those of you who are listening, uh, write to me. I read all my email. You write me at mike at michaelmore.com. You don't even have to write that down. You can remember that. Mike at michaelmoore.com. 
And if you want to send me a, a voicemail or leave me a voicemail, actually, just click on the link and it rings me and, and it leaves a one minute. You can leave a one minute voicemail. And I listen to all my voicemails. I read all my emails. So I'd love to hear from you and hear your suggestions here for Rumble. Uh, it's much appreciated. Thank you, everybody. And we'll talk to you in, in, a, in a couple of days.